This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Pain management is a combination of science and art. We certainly have a variety of treatment options to choose from. However, some have significant potential for harm and some have the potential to be abused and carry the risk of dependence. We need to choose our treatment options carefully based on the type of pain the patient is experiencing, as well as other health conditions found in our patients. In addition to the various analgesic products, other options include injections, nerve blocks, and several integrative medicine treatments. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the various pain management options we have available and hopefully give you some new ideas to help control pain in your patients. Our guest is Dr. Christine Hunt, a pain medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Christy, welcome and thank you for joining us. You know, I think we could easily spend six hours talking about this subject, but I have no doubt that you'll be able to distill it down into 20 or 30 minutes. Thank you for inviting me, Daryl. I'm delighted to be here and I look forward to our conversation. Well, let's start by asking you to describe the various types of pain that patients might experience. That's a great question. It's important, I think, to delineate acute from chronic pain and also consider categories of pain within that range. So for me, there's a very different treatment approach for somebody who comes in having sustained a motor vehicle accident a few days ago and has some neck pain versus the person who's been struggling with chronic neck pain for several years. Within those caveats, we largely think of pain as divided into somatic pain and neuropathic pain, as well as visceral pain, commonly how we think of these things. And somatic pain can ref commonly refers to musculoskeletal type pain. It might be some post-operative pain associated with an incision, for example, or pain associated with an acute injury. We often see neuropathic pain develop either in the context of situations that we're all familiar with, let's say sort of diabetic peripheral neuropathy or pain clearly involving a nerve, but we also see neuropathic really bringing in strong flavors in patients who have chronic pain. So something that might have started out mechanical low back pain, and we think of this commonly as musculoskeletal pain, can often develop neuropathic components over time. And that has to do with how patients develop central sensitization in the presence of chronic pain. It's a very common situation to develop. Visceral pain is uh, yet another kind of pain that I think doesn't nicely fit into either of the other two categories. And we can often think we sort of know what visceral pain means, right? Pain sort of associated with organ type of pain. Very common to see chronic abdominal pain in my practice. Uh, we also can see visceral pain crop up in some forms of pelvic pain, especially in our female patients. So those would be, those are sort of some of the three broad types of pain that I often encounter. Okay. Let's talk about some of the treatment options, and we'll start with the uh, mild to moderate pain, often musculoskeletal, acetaminophen. Uh, where would we use something like acetaminophen? So patients, you know, this is often a first-line treatment for addressing pain like this. Patients are often pretty familiar with how to use this and when to use this, so often they might come into your office having already used it. It's very common for patients to misunderstand safety considerations around acetaminophen. For example, they may say, well, I know that's bad for my kidneys, so I don't want to take it, right? So those are great opportunities we have to provide education to our patients. Patients often may um, underdose Tylenol sometimes. They may only take one gram, you know, 
twice a day, when in fact they can take three grams in patients without liver disease uh, very safely per day in divided doses. So acetaminophen is a great um, first-line treatment, um, especially for those mild to moderate pains and especially the more acute pain category. Well, as a geriatrician, I have a lot of patients who have chronic musculoskeletal pain, usually from degenerative arthritis. I start with this and I find that they often are used to taking it as an as needed basis. And I find they get much better results if we dose this thing regularly. So they're taking it several times a day, every day. Is that uh, beneficial? That's often what I recommend that patients do actually to schedule that. I think a twice a day regimen is manageable for most patients three times a day if they can manage it. That's certainly how we look to dose it in the hospital as kind of a foundational analgesic regimen. So it's a great idea to talk with your patients about taking that medication on a scheduled basis. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go to the NSAIDs. Um, certainly a product which helps a lot of people, certainly a product that has potential to cause problems. Um, any differences in the various NSAIDs available? That's a great question. I um, have a lot of patients who come to me and have had trouble with NSAIDs in the past. And especially in my older patients, you know, patients over 60, I'm really trying to stay away from those types of medicines because if they haven't developed chronic kidney disease yet, you know, there may be some problem with that. They might have a little bit of hypertension. So for a lot of patients, it's contraindicated. It's also not a medicine that I love for patients to take long term. So helpful in that acute pain situation, particularly with our younger patients. In terms of types of NSAIDs, you know, we sometimes think of those COX selective NSAIDs like meloxicam or celecoxib as being uh, more protective of the gut. And that may be true to some extent, but in patients who have any history of GI bleeding or ulcer disease, I would still stay away from those. And again, it's not going to help those patients who are at risk for injury to the kidneys. So um, I don't consider them to be, you know, this panacea 100% safe alternative. Alternative. Again, in my younger patients with perhaps an acute injury, we might be looking at taking a leave on a scheduled basis twice a day for several days to help them get over some sort of acute injury, for example, very classic in those strain types of injuries. And then the as-needed types of medicines like ibuprofen uh, can be helpful with patients with kind of acute time-limited pain. I will sometimes see patients, particularly in the community, prescribed diclofenac, which is interesting to me. I, I don't think that oral diclofenac is usually one that I would first reach for. It just tends to be a little rougher on the gut. So I tend to not reach for that medicine, although topical diclofenac um, is safe. And I've seen it work very well in many patients, especially if the injury or pain is sort of superficial and close to the surface. Think small joints, for example. One question I have often wondered and never had a chance to ask, you mentioned diclofenac and in the gel form, does that bypass the GI toxicity issue? So it has one thirty-second the systemic absorption of oral NSAIDs. So it doesn't entirely bypass that system, but it's such a small dose relative to oral that it's uh, really safe in you know almost all patients. Okay, all I've right. never had them. I've actually spoken with a nephrologist about this before, and they don't have issues with topical diclofenac. Okay, and unfortunately, we don't have a lot to offer our patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain from DJD and they are kind of forced to use chronic NSAIDs. And if that's the case, do you recommend using that with a proton pump inhibitor or misoprostol to help protect the stomach? 
you know, those have generally been discouraged due to some of the safety concerns with long-term use of proton pump inhibitors. So we generally try to discourage that. A helpful medicine that I'll often use in chronic musculoskeletal pain is consideration of an SNRI, like duloxetine, for example. And so not to jump forward our conversation too much, but there are actually some alternative oral medications that can sometimes be helpful in patients where acetaminophen just isn't cutting it. Let's change directions a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about neuropathic pain. What's available for pain from neuropathic sources? There are three main types of categories of medicines that I use in my patients with chronic pain, um, including neuropathic pain, certainly chronic neuropathic pain. And then, like I said, a lot of chronic pain tends to develop neuropathic features over time. So this can be helpful in those patients. The SNRI class, medicines like duloxetine or venlafaxine, which I tend not to use as much because the symptoms of when patients are, are discontinuing the medicine are a little bit, can be helpful. So um, I might reach for this in patients who have chronic musculoskeletal pain with sort of some fibromyalgia-like features or where there seems to be more of a musculoskeletal type component to their pain. We dose that at a lower dose than one does for depression. So for example, for Cymbalta, I slowly titrate them up to a maximum dose of 60 milligrams daily, whereas you might go for twice that in the patients where you're treating mood symptoms. So I take the time to educate patients that, look, I'm not treating you for depression. I'm not telling you that I think you're depressed and that's why you have pain. Although we know that those comorbidities often exist together, but I counsel my patients that we're, we're dosing this for pain. Another class of medicines that I use are those uh, gabapentinoid type medications, so gabapentin or pregabalin. Pregabalin is now available in generic form, so whereas this might not have been affordable for many patients a few years ago, it's now available generically. I tend to start with gabapentin in patients where it seems more clearly neuropathic, and we might switch over to pregabalin if we're just if we're sort of titrating up to that maximum dose and it's either not working very well or poorly tolerated. Pregabalin has better oral bioavailability than gabapentin, and so some patients may find it works a little bit better. They can tolerate it a bit better, but that's not a hard and fast rule. I've had patients where we tried switching to pregabalin and gabapentin worked better for them. I've really seen both situations. The third class of medicines that I will more commonly reach for will be the tricyclic antidepressants. Amitriptyline may be a little bit more stronger and more effective in some patients, but it tends to have more anticholinergic side effects. I treat many patients who are older, and so I typically reach for nortriptyline, which has fewer anticholinergic side effects. This is particularly a nice choice if my patients tell me they have a lot of pain when they're sleeping uh, because this uh, medicine is taken before bedtime and sort of may help patients feel a little bit more tired at night. It's no replacement for great practices like good sleep hygiene, which is always foundational, so I'm not using it as a sleep medicine. But when that happens to be something that a patient tells me they have more pain at night, that might be the medicine that I reach for. Again, all of these I will slowly titrate per the medication template, medication titration templates that we have here at Mayo. Well, turning to topical products, you've already mentioned diclofenac gel. What else might be available in a topical form? Lidocaine cream or lidocaine patches are also very popular. Lidocaine patches at 5% strength are available by prescription, but those are very costly. Slightly lower strength at about 4% is available in most uh, drug stores or grocery stores where patients may go. And so I usually counsel them, you know, hey, try the lidocaine patch. So either lidocaine patches or lidocaine creams or gels. I'm very careful to tell them, be careful of formulations that might have menthol in them. So for patients who have neuropathic pain, like think about your diabetic peripheral neuropathy, that menthol may not be well tolerated. So that's very common. 
compounded creams, I think, are a little bit controversial. So we have some nice compounded cream choices that have different types of agents in them. In addition to lidocaine, they might have ketamine, they might have amitriptyline, they might have gabapentin. But in head-to-head -head randomized controlled trials, there has been no demonstrated superior efficacy of these compounded creams over regular old lidocaine. So especially understanding that this is a very costly type of medicine, the, the compounded creams, I should tell my patients to at least try lidocaine first. The situation is commonly, hey, I, I came out of the hospital and I was given this compounded cream. I can't afford it. What can I do? And I tell them we'll try the just the regular lidocaine and um, patients do well with that, with that switch. You roll for capsaicin. So that's a great question too. Capsaicin, I think, is tolerated to variable degrees. I really never use it. We still do have a sort of prescribable cutenza patch treatment that is really, really, really painful for patients. I've had patients who've tried topical capsaicin before and have had variable degrees of benefit with it. So again, something that's probably safe to try, but I've not, just anecdotally in my practice, I've not seen a lot of home run hits with that. Let's turn now to the opioids. We're not going to spend much time on this because uh, this could easily uh, generate uh, a lot of discussion, but let me just throw a few at you and tell me what use they may have in some of our patients. Uh, let's start with codeine. Yeah, so codeine is a medicine that, again, we might be uh, used for some patients with cough, which is not something that I'm really working with in my practice, but as a pain medication, and I'll tell you what kind of what my bias is with respect to opioids, or I'd like to say probably informed opinion about opioids. Codeine is not something that we're re really reaching for to treat pain per se. The Tylenol with codeine um, is sometimes used more so from a regulatory standpoint than anything else, depending on what state you live in. There may be different regulatory requirements surrounding Tylenol with codeine versus some of the stronger opioids. So that's typically where I've seen the context that I've seen that in. Early in my career, we used a fair amount of meparidine for pain. I haven't seen it used much currently. What's the role for meparidine or is there one? We really don't use it anymore, either perioperatively or in the outpatient setting. Meparidine tended to be highly addictive um, and was associated with a strong sense of euphoria. So for safety reasons, that's largely not used anymore, at least that I'm aware of. There may be some community practices that use it, but not very common. Okay. How about oxycodone, oxycontin? So that's really the one of the most common drugs that we might see patients being treated with, particularly in the community. I would consider if you're wanting to reach for a medication like an opioid, that's a reasonable first-line agent to try. Again, I'm really prescribing opioid for my cancer pain patients. Or if I'm meeting a patient who's coming to me from the community, let's say they just moved here, for example, and they're, you know, they they had no plan for what they're going to do with their opioid, and then I might taper that medication. So I'll offer, you know, to walk patients through a taper that I'm happy to do. So those are sort of lower potency opioid compared to something like hydromorphone or fentanyl, for example. Again, for our non-cancer patients, I would really encourage to stick with the oxycodone. CDC guidelines really encourage us to stick to the immediate release opioid medications if we need to use those in chronic non-cancer pain. And then some of the long-acting agents may be appropriate in our patients with cancer-associated pain. Well, these products do have a potential for dependence and one issue I have seen is some providers withholding these medications in patients with pain from a terminal illness, and mm. you shouldn't really deal with or worry about dependence in those situations. The number one goal is to keep the patient comfortable. Is that something you agree with? 
I really do agree with that. Patients actually tend to come with a lot of fears about that. I've had patients with cancer, you know, they might be dying of cancer and they're hesitant to take opioids because they're afraid of risks of addiction. And so I really take that as an opportunity to have a thoughtful conversation with that patient. Frankly, the, the risk of addiction is still there. And unfortunately, patients will tend to succumb to their disease before that becomes an issue. So we're really not worried about that. I'm having an entirely different conversation with my cancer pain patients. Some patients, fortunately, um, achieve remission. And then we're trying to, you know, I've had a couple of patients where we're trying to work to gradually taper that dose and we can do that just fine. So, you know, a lot of times I'm trying to kind of help counsel the patient, the family members about what our goals are with respect to pain management and cancer. And that being very different than our chronic non-cancer pain population. We tend to think of the analgesics as the pharmacologic options, but there are some non-pharmacologic treatments that we often don't think of, such things as heat, cold, PT, OT. Where might those be useful? I really consider physical therapy and occupational therapy as the foundation for my treatments with patients. A lot of times, mobility is really the answer for patients. I'm sure we've all had those conversations where they said, oh, I did PT years ago. It didn't help. And you ask, you know, well, what does what your home exercise program look like right now? And they'll kind of look at their spouse maybe and they'll get an elbow and they'll say, well, I don't really have one. And so that tells me right there that, you know, we kind of need to circle back to this. I spent a lot of time coaching patients on the importance of a physical therapy directed home exercise program. And usually we're talking about PT, but occupational therapy can be very helpful in uh, some of our patients who have overuse injuries of the upper extremities, and also can even be helpful in some relaxation techniques and some of those, uh, some of those strategies that can be helpful for patients. So that's a conversation that I'm having every single time with patients, and I'm always referencing it in my care plan for every patient. Either we're going to try this sort of form of physical therapy, or we're going to reinforce and make sure that they're continuing to do their home, um, home exercise program. I have had a few patients who've actually gotten really good results from uh, acupuncture as well. And uh, that's something we can think about in, uh, in select patients. Let's go into the world that Certainly. you're used to experiencing a day-to-day basis. Let's talk about where injections may be useful, maybe for chronic back pain or other neuropathic pain. The use of interventional pain therapies, particularly in our chronic pain patients, but also in some acute pain patients, nerve blocks in particular, um, has really grown over the past 10 to 15 years. And it can be very helpful in patients who have at least a focal symptom contributing to their symptom burden. I would consider that patients who have something like fibromyalgia, where they have kind of chronic pain everywhere, and there's a, there's a, sometimes there might be strong mood symptoms associated with their pain, that injections may be relatively contraindicated in that population. But otherwise, a good part of my practice, I'm spending time thinking about what are some of these interventional therapies that we can use to help alleviate that symptom burden in patients with chronic pain. Because a lot of times by the time they come to see me, they've tried several pharmacologic therapies and physical therapy. We always revisit those choices, but then we go on to that. For chronic axial pain of the cervical spine, lumbar spine, um, even thoracic spine in some patients, it's kind of that midline pain, very mechanical pain without any radiating or radicular symptoms into the extremities. We're really looking at facet joint-based procedures. Facet joint injections were 
sort of a treatment that we did for many years, but radiofrequency ablation has largely replaced that in most patients. And this involves actually creating a coagulation-induced necrosis right at these little nerve branches by the facet joints that send pain signals is a way to describe it to patients. Um, and that can be a pretty effective therapy in a lot of these mechanical pain patients. Um, so it's really transformed um, how we've approached spine care. I commonly see epidural steroid injections overused, particularly in some of my patients who might have moved here from a different location and they've gotten epidurals for low back pain. I wasn't there, so I don't know what the conversation was, but unless they really have ridiculous symptoms, we don't necessarily reach for epidural steroid injections in those circumstances. Spinal stenosis is still sort of a covered indication, but very controversial whether it might help our patients with pain from lumbar spinal stenosis, but sometimes reasonable to try. What kind of symptoms might a patient have when they have back pain secondary to a facet arthritis? How would they present? So these patients will have very much mechanical type pain. So it's going to be worse with activity, better with rest. Very commonly is worse pain with loading of the posterior elements. So actually an exam maneuver that we do is we have them load those facet joints. So we'll kind of have them engage in extension and then we'll kind of rotate a little bit from side to side. And that sort of activity tends to be painful. That's the classic presentation of that sort of patient. We'll do a focused exam, of course, and we'll make sure that they don't have any symptoms that I'm worried about that are neurological or radicular. And then we sort of see that mechanical presentation and exam consistent with that. And what duration of time would a patient get relief with a facet injection? So if we're talking about facet joint injections with steroid, which we don't use as often these days, you know, I always tell patients we're hoping for three months, but the amount of time may be highly variable. I tend to see facet joint injections with steroid being most helpful in my patients with rheumatologic spectrum disease or kind of have an inflammatory component of pain, particularly effective in SI joint pain in those types of patients. And it can be helpful as we're getting them moved towards some type of DMARD therapy, something like that. For the radiofrequency ablation, we're hoping that patients get at least six months of relief. Again, that can be variable, but that's what we're hoping. On average, we might see sort of nine or 10 months. Some patients may get less time than that, unfortunately. Before the radiofrequency ablation, patients undergo these diagnostic procedures that some of your listeners may have heard of. We call them medial branch blocks. That can be a confusing trajectory for some patients. And the plan is really, um, they come in for one set of medial branch nerve blocks done with just a little bit of anesthetic right in the area that we would perform the ablation. Um, if they get great relief, they come in for a second procedure just to kind of confirm that response. And then if they have two successful medial branch blocks with a positive response, improvement in their pain and their function, then they could be a candidate for the radiofrequency ablation procedure. So we do really like to make sure before patients come in for that, that we think they have a reasonable chance of responding well. The nerve blocks are really kind of a test to see if the radioablation is going to be effective. Is that right? They are. I think they're best thought of as prognostic blocks. They're often called diagnostic, but really what we're doing is we're using these blocks to see if they are likely to benefit from the uh, ablation procedure. So definitely can be thought of as a test procedure. So yes. are, are these patients, those who typically have more radicular symptoms? Is that when you'd be using something like this? This is really more for axial pain. So um, that kind of mechanical type pain that we were talking about before, very common in the lumbar spine, also very common in the neck. So there are some very nice cervical facet referral patterns. They might feel it kind of up of the head, sometimes even kind of radiating around toward the forehead. That ram's horn distribution often is from upper cervical facet pain. They might have it kind of middle of the neck. They might even have pain extending out to the shoulder blades. It's very common to have that patient who has that sort of shoulder blade area pain and you might be kind of 
thinking of all different types of ways to treat it, but it's just very aggravating. And that can often be referred pain from the lower cervical facet joints. It's pretty uncommon for us to see this coming from the thoracic spine, in large part because the thoracic spine is relatively immobile relative to the cervical spine or lumbar spine. But I'm seeing that more commonly, maybe patients have had a previous kyphoplasty, for example, um, or they've had some sort of anatomical problem with one of their segments and they might have developed some adjacent segment pain or discomfort. Those are the typically the patients that might benefit from some ablation in the thoracic spine. And are the uh, radioablation treatments felt to be permanent then? They are not. On average, you say they hope they last at least six months, but they can be repeated. Okay. So we can repeat those. They don't have to go through the whole medial branch process again, but they can be repeated no more often than every six months. Okay. Is there any role for nutrition in uh, managing pain? I am so glad that you asked that question. I call it like a four core fundamentals approach to pain management, and nutrition is one of those core elements. There's actually very good literature that you might call it an anti-inflammatory diet it can be really helpful in our patients with chronic pain, particularly low back pain or where a lot of the studies that have been done. You know, there's so many different types of diets that patients can choose from to the point that it becomes overwhelming and confusing. So sometimes sending them for like a nutrition consultation with an integrative medicine can be helpful. The diet plans that tend to work well with kind of the sort of the unifying factors from all these different choices, Mediterranean, Mayo Clinic diet, gluten-free, keto, right? All of these different choices, there's really sort of four basic elements. And those four elements are to avoid sugar, which is highly, highly inflammatory, avoid ultra processed foods. So I tell patients if it has more than five ingredients, step away. You know, we all talk about, you know, stick to the periphery of the grocery store when you're going around that sort of thing. Use of healthy fats, you know, especially those monounsaturated fats, you know, go for nuts, go for avocados, go for olive oil. And then plenty of vegetables, trying to keep it basic. Sometimes we'll try to kind of talk and have some of those conversations about um, some choices or plans that patients might think about. I believe that nutrition is fundamental to successful treatment of pain. And I've had several patients who, when they were able to make that transition, which is a challenge for many of our patients, they just feel so much better. And I've definitely seen it be effective in the treatment of chronic pain. We've talked about all these different options, and there's no reason that a patient can't use multiple things at once, you know, an oral analgesic, a physical therapy, OT, injection, all of these sometimes work very nicely together. They really do. What I really try to avoid doing is trialing more than one pharmacotherapy at once. Mm -hmm. so that's why we try to be careful that if we're going to be considering some of these adjuvant medications, we layer them on slowly and over time. But otherwise, you know, we're often combining some of these things. So patients may be on more than one type of uh, medication for pain. They might be on, let's say, gabapentin and duloxetine, for example. But we're not going to be titrating those at the same time because then we're not sure which one is working and which one might be causing side effects. And so it makes that titration very difficult, but otherwise we're often using them in, in combination. Physical therapy is sort of the foundation. We might be layering on some pharmacologic agents, and then we look to those interventional therapies in patients who, you know, we think could benefit. Christy, you've done an amazing job of uh, distilling this information down into 30 minutes. Can you summarize our discussion by giving us maybe two or three key points on pain management options? I would say that when it comes to pain management, What's very important is to 
look for those opportunities to find rapport and partnership with your patients, because there can be a lot of stigma surrounding chronic pain that patients may, um, to the point that patients may feel a little nervous to bring it up. So demonstrating to your patients that, hey, we're willing to talk about this, and there are some great strategies for addressing your pain that don't involve opioid medications. Many patients are very open to that. When people hear the word pain management, a lot of times they automatically think of opioid. Getting rid of that myth and dispelling that and looking for opportunities to partner with your patients is really critical. Number two, I would say don't ignore the core fundamentals when it comes to chronic pain. Adequate sleep, at least seven hours per night, anti-inflammatory type of diet, stress management, and exercise is fundamental. Definitely revisit if they've done physical therapy recently. And then for number three, sort of think about, you know, are you kind of firing on all cylinders when it comes to your pain management plan? Are we doing a physical therapy directed home exercise program? Are we using rational pharmacologic therapy, ideally avoiding opioids? Are we using interventional therapies when appropriate, layering and using these things together as a multimodal treatment plan to help the patient? We've been discussing pain management options with Dr. Christine Hunt, a pain medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Christy, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us on this really important topic. Thank you, Daryl. It's been a pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.